Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, one of my favorite topics is about conflict. And by conflict, I mean conflict, tension, and disagreement. I contend it is part of every team and every organization. And it's not that you're doing something wrong. It's just what we need to be doing to get great results inside organizations. But those, and I also, those teams, those individuals that can navigate conflict well are going to be the ones that are going to get superb results. However, I find in the people I talk to, way too many of us aren't comfortable with a conflict. Well, actually, we're either not comfortable with it and avoid it, or we overreact to it and get overly aggressive around the conflict. One of the two extremes, at least that's what I see. And of course, as much as you get the advice to make it not personal, when it really matters, it always feels personal. That's something you can't completely take out. So the topic for today is really how do you get more comfortable with conflict and disagreement? And my guest today is Marlene Chisholm. Marlene is a seasoned speaker, thought leader, coach, author, widely recognized as the leading U.S. authority on stopping workplace drama, something we've talked about on this show in the past. She works with C-suite leaders to build drama-free cultures that drive growth and reduce costly mistakes. And she's known for helping managers address the elephant in the room and initiate conversations that get results. Uh, Marlene's leadership courses are instrumental in teaching the communication skills you need to initiate the conversations that increase accountability and deliver results. She's recognized as an expert on the LinkedIn Global Learning Platform. She's got educational videos on anger management, having difficult conversations, working with high-conflict people, managing conflict, and getting results in a hybrid work environment, just to name a few. Now, the book we're going to talk about today is From Conflict to Courage, but Marlene also has three other books. Number one, Stop Workplace Drama. Number two, No Drama Leadership. And number three, Stop, Stop Drama in Your Healthcare Practice. And you can check out more at her website, MarleneChisholm.com. So Marlene, welcome to the show. Wanda, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. This well, first off, drama, I just think, is one of the things we can't know enough about. But today, we're going to start talking about the conflict and about how we can get more comfortable with conflict, and then we'll spend a little bit of time on drama. But let me start where I always like to start. Why are you so passionate about this notion of conflict and drama? What drives your interest? Many areas drive it for me. One is personally, you know, I think we've all had a lot of conflict, whether we admit it or not, depending on how you're wired. So I'm interested in it for my own personal growth. My master's study was drama in the workplace hampers productivity, the effect of relationships on the bottom line. So when I studied drama from that perspective, from the organizational perspective, it affects every area of life from your teamwork, your productivity, um, your health, your well-being, it affects everything. It was really hard to do the research because everything led to something else. So it's just a worldwide interest for me. Great. 
All right. So at the beginning of that, you said personal and an area of personal growth. Does that mean you two have conflicts that you kind of can't navigate through as easily or have you mastered them all by now? Well, I'll, I'll never master it all because as long as we're growing, we're going to have different conflicts. So I would say that I've expanded in my ability to manage conflict. But yes, I think as long as we're growing, we're going to get challenged because we live inside of our mind and our body. And so we never take a class or read a book or take courses after courses or get a PhD in it. We never become perfect at it. We're we're human beings and we're on a human journey. One of the running commentary with one of my colleagues, with several of my colleagues, is that from the outside, when I have no stake in the situation, it's often easier to see what your choices are, what your avenues are, what the next steps, how you're getting yourself all wrapped up in something you don't need to get wrapped up in. That's not so hard to see from the outside. But when it comes to my personal life and personal situations where I do have emotions wrapped in, I don't have any clarity at all. So 100%. I mean, you know, I always tell people think of me as the guy on the you're the uh, Olympian on the balance beam. And I'm telling you not to to point your toe or not, you know, like it's not, I'm not on the balance beam. I'm watching you. I'm observing you. And therefore I can be more objective. So when you're coaching, you have to be empathetic and understand where that person is and meet them where they are. But at the same time, you're objective in that you can see what's happening and they can't see it. And I always tell people, if I were you, I would have this same conflict because I would be you. So there's not any judgment in it. It's the recognition that as a human being, sometimes you need an outside force to help you see clearly and help you and meet you right where you are. Right. I agree. And that is the best endorsement I have ever seen. The reason I think we need coaches and mentors. Okay. So let's do a little bit of defining. Um, Often, particularly with my non-US clients, when I say the word conflict, they go into panic mode because conflict to them means this big explosion. And we've already gotten to the point where division lines are drawn. So when I say conflict, I start with the meaning that it is we disagree. It matters to both parties. There might be multiple, but let's say both for the moment. And of course, that has some emotion in it because we both care about the outcome. That's how I see it. What's, but is that consistent with how you think about conflict? It, it encompasses the way I see it. And that is how most people view conflict. You know, they're, they're afraid of it because they see it as a big blow up emotions and so on. What I did to help myself and to help my readers was to redefine conflict so that it becomes more objective instead of so personal. So in the book, the way that I describe conflict is opposing drives, desires and demands. So if you look at it from two arrows, you know, going in opposite directions, If I look at conflict as opposing drives, desires, and demands, then I stop the judgment of you're just trying to get at me, or you're just trying to be stubborn, or you don't understand me. It makes me curious and want to understand where your opposing drives, desires, and demands are. Why do you see it this way? I want to learn. So that already puts me in a bigger aspect of control, because now I'm curious instead of an enemy with you, I'm trying to figure out where we are not aligned. Right. Okay. I like that. Conflict is when we have opposing drives, desires, and demands, and it could be any combination of those. 
Yes. And in fact, you know, it can even be in yourself. I I talk a lot about inner conflict and I've jokingly said I can have conflict without anyone else in the room. (laughs) Most of us know that like, should I, shouldn't I? Well, if I say this, then they're going to say that. Well, I have, I need to have the conversation, but if I do, it might ruin my opportunity. Or if I say no to this, it might hurt future opportunities. So we always have internal opposing forces and we're not even aware of that. And it can make us seem very confusing to someone else because we're talking out of one side of our mouth, but doing something else. Well, I really don't want to do it, but I did it to make them happy. There's your opposing drive. And so I often say that there is no conflict unless there's first an inner conflict. Ah, there's no conflict unless there's first an inner conflict. You got to explain why you say that. I get your point about I have an inner conflict with myself over should I do this or should I not do this? Yesterday is a case in point. But you say there is no conflict unless there's inner conflict first. Explain. Okay, so if I need to make a decision, maybe I've realized that I need to set a boundary with someone. Mm -hmm. If I don't have any inner conflict about that, in other words, if I don't care whether I lose the relationship or whether it betters the relationship, if I don't have a stake in the outcome, I just know I have to set a boundary, then if then I don't care. I set the boundary. If your feelings are hurt, that belongs to you. And the good news is, since we're not sociopaths, we do care about other people. <laughs> so I'm going to have inner conflict based on what outcome I want and based on how I want you to receive what I'm saying, because I'm a caring person. Where we have to work that out is to understand strategically all of the implications, and then we still have to make a decision. And what I have found is that when I work with someone, whether it be a C-suite leader, a director, any any person that has a conflict, even if you make a decision that's difficult, you'll feel a sense of peace and clarity. When you're wound up about something and you're still talking about it and you're still blaming and you're still judging and you're having sleepless nights, that means your inner conflict has not been resolved. You want your cake, you want to eat it too. Once you make peace with the results that are going to happen, may or may not happen, you've resolved your inner conflict and then you, then you have clarity. Right. So I've decided, for example, I'm going to go on the principle of, let's say, cutting cost as opposed to on the principle of giving people a greater learning culture or some, I made that one up, but some, I've decided what principle it is I'm going to use. And then in doing that, I know it isn't a perfect decision, but I can have peace with the reasons I made the decision. So, And you may lose an employee or, or two because of that decision. And if you've thought it out, you know that that may happen. And you may try to negotiate because you've thought it out. And so sticking to your decision is understanding that you can't be attached to certain outcomes. There is no certainty. You'll never know the outcome of the choice you didn't make. So you come to peace with the idea that this is the best decision based on what you know right now. And you're at peace with it. So whatever happens, you're at peace with the consequences too. Okay. I have always said to people... um, that when you're facing a difficult conversation or a conflict situation, that you should evaluate on a 10-point scale. How important is this to me? The outcome of this is to me. 10 is a lot. One is nothing. And if you're not at least an 8, 9, or 10 on the scale, then consider doing something else because it's what you said. It's when I have a stake in the outcome that I start to have that notion of the inner conflict. And I think we have to really evaluate it. Is this one worth the effort that I'm going to put in 
to get to a resolution. Yeah, and that's a great point. And, and, and sometimes I think it's just about getting curious because there's something that's driving me. And I think your point is, you know, that I'm getting is that examine yourself. Do you just like to win? You know, pick your battles. We've all heard that. So um, some, sometimes our inner growth is about I'm really being nitpicky here, you know, and but you've got to be honest with yourself, too, because. I've walked away sometimes saying, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm a big girl. And then I blow up later. So that tells me that I haven't been honest with how much I want something or I'm afraid to let someone know how much something means to me. So we have to be willing to some degree to be vulnerable and still be disappointed. And if we fear losing, then we're not going to be that vulnerable with someone. So I think that's the inner growth part. I think that's part of it. And I think there's, I see an awful lot of people who generate conflict within their teams or within their peers when what they want is to have something done their way as opposed to have something done. Now, occasionally that might be appropriate and occasionally it's not necessarily appropriate. So getting that sense of what's this really about for me, what's really at stake for me, What's my source of inner conflict around this one? Um, and what are the principles I'm going to use to make my own decision? It tells me that there's an awful lot of work we need to do individually, internally, before we turn to having a conversation with somebody else. Yeah, I, I really advocate for personal responsibility and for self-awareness, doing a lot of inner work. So that's why I always say that personal growth is leadership growth. It's okay. really hard to be a great leader if you if you're unaware personally of what drives you, what upsets you. You know, I, I've done journaling before. Get rid of my petty stuff. You know, I've just done journaling before to like look at whatever is petty in my life because when we get wound up and get in those times where we know we're not being our best self, sometimes it's it's time to look at that and just journal it out, write it out, and go. That was pretty insignificant. You know, I got pretty upset in traffic. What was that all about? I had nowhere to go, but I acted like I was in a hurry. Just that kind of awareness can, can make you better at, at managing conflict. Okay. All right. Now related to this one. So everybody who listens to me knows that I believe the conflict is just part of life. In fact, I argue that a team that doesn't have conflict, either you've got groupthink going on, so you're not really talking about what matters, or you actually don't need a team. Let one person decide and move on because you all think the same way. So I think if there isn't conflict, we are ultimately sub-optimizing our performance in one way or the other. And particularly in today's organizations where there's so much cross-team kind of work, let's say on a project or on a task force or on a delivery even for that matter. And there are inherently in that different metrics of success just to take a very simple one, different time allocations, a whole bunch of problems. So the conflict is inherent, all right? And as you've said, not addressing the conflict is going to hurt everything. Health and well-being, I think, is going to impact retention. I think it's going to impact the culture. I think it's going to ultimately impact profitability, errors, innovation. I mean, everything, absolutely, totally everything. But here's a controversial statement from you. You said conflict isn't the problem. So what is? And what do yes. you mean? <clears throat> Most of us think that conflict is the problem, and that's why we get into dysfunctional ways of, of managing conflict. But if you think about it this way, conflict itself is not the problem. Mismanagement is the problem. 
So what that means is we have to learn how to manage conflict versus avoiding it, appeasing, getting aggressive, shoving it under the carpet. The problem that we have is when we mismanage it. We're gossiping to someone else. We're getting resentful. So it's about learning to manage conflict. All right. So, all right, I'll bite on that one. Um, How does this work? How do we go about managing conflict? Well, I think you have to recognize mismanagement because most people do not recognize their mismanagement. Um, I say that the, the conversation avoided today becomes the lawsuit three or four years later. Conflict is mismanaged when you have a performer that maybe other people don't get along with. Maybe they're great at what they do. They don't get along. So you decide to do a reorganization and move that person to the basement to work by themselves, or you do something to manipulate instead of having the conversation about the behavior and the thoughts behind the behavior, the identity behind the behavior. So then the behavior allowed becomes the standard. So when you move that person to someone else's supervision, it doesn't solve the problem everywhere. It only solves it for you in the immediate. And since you have that pattern, that's going to keep continuing. So mismanagement is avoiding a conversation. It's doing a reorganization. It's blowing up my way or the highway. That is mismanagement. Even though you got your way initially, you mismanaged it, which starts another trajectory. It's a domino effect. And so if we don't even recognize mismanagement, we don't think we have conflict because we got rid of the conflict by doing what we do. Right, right. And in fact, some would argue I got rid of the conflict. So look how great I am with conflict. The problem is you may be comfortable with the conflict, but no one else around you is now. And the issue that needed to be discussed hasn't been discussed. And I can't tell you how many times I see this. I see this in people say to me, I hate conflict. It makes me nervous. My family was never good with conflict. So I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. And including that difficult conversation with the difficult feedback, because I don't want the conflict that comes out of it. And how many times, Marilyn, how many times have we seen organizations or teams reorganize in order to solve a problem around a person? Yeah, that's almost, always the first, that's almost always the first stance. You know, let's just reorganize. It's time to give them a different title or let's wait. They've only got four months before they retire or they've got tenure. So there's nothing I can do because we're a government agency. We've given them a 2.5 on their evaluation of one to five. It keeps them holding a job. That's been the way it's been for 20 years. We can't do anything about it now. That shows you the levels of mismanagement that went on for 20 years. Right. Right. All right. So I think we recognize those, but you talk about the blow up and not most people are going to say, well, I don't blow up, but there's a dozen ways of subtle blowing up. Like I can raise my voice with somebody, not to the point of having a problem, but um, I can be quite uh, clear in exactly what I want done and how I want it done and very firm and delivery in that one. I can keep arguing until you just get exhausted and do what I want you to do in the beginning. There's a whole host of ways in which we essentially say, do it my way. For sure. And I mean, you know, like even email, I see that a lot. I'm sure you do too with your clients. You see a terse email 
especially when someone's in a rush, they're hurried and, and they're aggravated that someone didn't understand or didn't get it done on time. And I actually, not too long ago, my assistant said, I really thought you were mad at me. And I thought, wow, as aware as I think I am, sometimes we misread email. And I, I always say email is really not for discussing big problem. It's for updates. It's for yes or no. It's for a memo. It's for sharing information. But once you get into something where it feels a little terse or there's disagreement, it's probably a quick pick up the phone or else be sure that you say, hey, respectfully, I disagree. And here's what, let's talk about it tomorrow at two, because I'm, I'm interested in you playing devil's advocate. But usually we kind of lose our consciousness and we do those terse things. Like you said, the tone of the voice, a sharp answer, a quick email, got it, can really seem like aggression to, to other people. Right, right. And I think people are particularly sensitive. All right. So now we talk about what mismanagement looks like. What does proper management look like? Proper management really is about deciding how to have a conversation. And a conversation doesn't necessarily mean that it's a long, drawn-out conversation. Sometimes it is. If you've allowed something for too long, if you've not given a great review and it's time to re rehab that conversation, sometimes it's really about being able to bring the elephant into the room right when you notice it. And this is where a lot of managers struggle. For example, let's say that you're in a meeting and you've got, I'm just going to use a name that could be male or female. You've got Chris folding their arms and rolling their eyes. You know that that's going on, but most of the time we don't say anything. Oh, well, we're all adults. It'll be okay. That's an indicator that there's conflict brewing. Someone doesn't agree. Someone doesn't, isn't going along. Someone isn't engaged. The trick is to notice it and then to take a pause and say, Chris, I noticed you crossed your arms. I thought you rolled your eyes. Do you disagree? Is there something you want to say? Most of the time, the person will be so caught off guard. They'll say, oh, no, no, I, I'm just cold. But by bringing it up, it brings that attention on the behavior. And usually the person will either circle back and say, you know, I was thinking about X, Y, and Z, or they'll be so aware of it that they don't do it. But you can still, as a leader, circle back and say, hey, I just want to check again. If you ever do disagree, because my the way I was perceiving it, see, I'm not judging and saying, you didn't care. You That's going to create a disagreement. But if I say, I've perceived a couple of times by your body language that you disagreed, but maybe didn't want to speak in front of everyone, I truly want to open the door to hear your point of view. If you don't want to do it in public, feel free if you change your mind. So that's how we start creating understanding versus trying to attack someone or call them out in a bad way. We just simply notice the observed behavior. Okay. So, and but we have to be very careful because I can notice that behavior and put Chris on the spot mm -hmm. and then embarrass Chris. Mm -hmm. And now I've made a psychologically unsafe environment where no one is going to speak up because so it's a, that's a very delicate how do I know if I'm doing it in a constructive way versus I'm doing it in a shutdown way? Well, you can always do it privately first. So you don't have to do it. It depends on the culture. It depends on your own discernment and the tone of voice. So if you feel that this might be embarrassing, they're new or they've been kind of sensitive, there's been some problems, it might just be a quick, hey, would you stop by just for a minute? I noticed when I was talking about this, I noticed that you crossed your arms and then you started looking at your phone and you know we have a phones off policy that made me perceive that you disagree and that you didn't want to bring it up to the group. And then you're just quiet. It gives them the chance to really examine their behavior. So that's not aggressive at all. If they continue to do it, you can even say, I'm going to bring it up next time. 
because it's continuing to happen. And I'm confused about what that means. Okay. You know, we expect everybody to have phones off. We expect people to participate. We expect people to disagree out loud. And I'm assuming that's the culture, but that's the way you handle something like right. that. A couple right. of ways to do it out loud, very inquisitively or quietly, and then saying next time I will bring it up right when it happens. So you'll see. Okay. So if I replay that back to you, if I'm going to say I noticed the elephant in the room, somebody's behavior, you said that there needs to be a tone of voice, which needs to be a calm one, not an edgy one, or a simple way of stating that. We always have the option of doing it privately, either privately or publicly. I think in essence, you said you want to stick to what you saw the person do. So I've got that behavioral observation followed by the interpretation you had of that particular behavior. And then you're asking for clarification or asking for confirmation. Yes. You're you're just inviting them into a conversation. They might say, you know, now that you bring it up, I was very aggravated. I thought that was unfair. Now don't get caught off track. Don't, don't take the bait and start arguing. Say, say more about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know you felt that way. And if you feel defensive or caught off track, you can say, I want to think about this. Let's talk again. I didn't understand that you felt that way, but it's valid. And, and I do want to have a right response. So that's how we start to prepare. You you can't think that you're always going to be in charge of the conversation because if someone does say, yeah, I thought it was BS and, you know, it wasn't fair. This is what happened to me. It's not the time to start arguing back and forth. Right now, it's about radical listening. If you're calm enough to be able to say, tell me more, and then I want to explain the decisions, and hopefully that'll change your mind. If you're in a centered place where you can do that, it might be the right time. If not, it's a scheduled conversation so that you can think it through. Right. Right. I think one of the single best, and you just said it, one of the single best things, particularly when you feel your blood rising or your, your blood pressure increasing or your face flushing and you feel the tension in your body and you know that they've now hooked you emotionally, the single best line is say more or tell me more and just take a breath. Just listen. And you don't have to address it right then. You, as you said, you can come back to it later. You can have time to calm down, to form your argument, to think about how you want to frame it. Um, but at least you know where they're coming from and what the point is about. Okay. Yeah, and I, I was going to say this too. I think one thing I've noticed is that people want to not even acknowledge someone when they disagree. We just shut down and we don't say, I hear you. I hear you doesn't mean I agree with you. Yeah. But I hear you. It sounds like you're really frustrated is still an acknowledgement. And that is what's missing so often when there's disagreement. Right. Right. I contend, and I want to know if you agree with me on this, um, that People can accept a decision they disagree with if they feel they have been heard. Now, not 100% all the time, but mostly if they feel they've been genuinely heard, people can accept that there's a difference. I I think that's true most of the time. Most of the time, we are adults and we want to be treated like adults. We don't want to be danced around on eggshells and pretend that there's not an issue that's up. I need you to know I disagree. I need for you to say, I hear you. And it's already been decided by the researchers. The top level has made this decision and I hear you, but my job is to support that. That's a better conversation than just to like avoid that person because it's uncomfortable. And that's what I see so often. I just posted on LinkedIn today that um, once an attorney gets involved, it's almost very difficult to turn it around because once you get legal involved, it's about protection and risk aversion. It's not about relationships and trust. 
Well, and there's no listening, leftening happening, at least between oh. you and the counterparty on this particular case. All right. We started this by saying, how do you properly manage conflict? And you said, bring the elephant in the room. So that means that we're going to notice behaviors, sticking with behaviors. We're going to ask about those behaviors, confirm our observations, admit what our interpretation is of that behavior. We're going to say, say more or tell me more and acknowledge that we've heard it, not agree with it, but that we've heard it. Okay. So that's the bring the elephant in the room. Is there more we need to do to properly manage conflict? Yeah, absolutely. There's a a method that I teach called leadership clarity. What I see missing a lot of times from resolving conflict, especially if it's gone on for a while and it gets really confusing and there's lots of blaming and pointing of fingers, leadership clarity is clearly being able to articulate the situation, the outcome and the obstacles in the way. And the first part of that to clearly, I've seen most of the time when I've worked with someone, they cannot clearly articulate the situation. It's full of judgment. It's full of emotion. It's full of past history from years and years. So to be able to clearly articulate the situation, the way that I help people to do that is to ask the question, what is happening that should not be happening and what is not happening that should be? Once you answer that, you're into facts, you're into present moment, you're into the situation. Then we go on from there to talk about behaviors. But the first part of it is to articulate the situation. So if the situation is um, Chris is is not making any sales calls and Chris should be making 20 sales calls a day. Now that that's behavioral, but that's the same thing of the situation is we're losing customers and customers are not renewing. So we can get into the details of that in that statement. But that gives you a place to start with here's what's happening or not happening. And if you can't do that, you can't resolve the conflict. Right. Do you find that when you ask the question, people can easily get out of judgment and out of abandoning the history? Or do you find it takes a little bit of time and coaching to getting down to this accurate description of the situation, what's happening that should or shouldn't be happening. Oh, yeah, it always takes time. It takes time for me when I'm in that place. And so I think as coaches, we have to acknowledge the feelings and emotions and let someone be heard first. So it's meet people where they are and then share the process. Because until we have the awareness to look at where we're creating even more conflict by our unmet emotional needs, you, you really can't resolve it until you um, until you have... Uh, your inner game kind of straightened out. So I often say regulation before resolution. (laughs) You cannot coach an unregulated person. So my job at first is to to get, you know, regulation where they hear me, they know that I'm on their side and they feel regulated. That's when they start feeling safe. So I don't jump right into problem solving. We we seek um, regulation first. Right, right. That's, uh, yeah, that's what I have always experienced in my work is that I have to listen a long time to what is a long winding sequence of things that are not necessarily accurate. And sometimes I find I have to re-articulate for them just to say, well, I heard you say da, 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 da. At any rate, it's a, that's a hard process. It's really hard. And I, I've really worked to reduce that a lot. My goal is to make them feel safe with me and to hear the situation first and then give them the method and why the method exists because if they really, if they just want to be right and they just want to judge and blame, that's counseling. That's co- that's different than coaching, right? We're here to solve problems. So I will hear it and I will empathize and say that I feel those things too. But let's 
let's talk about what is it that you want. Because once you understand the outcome, complaining and blaming doesn't get you there. So if someone is continuing to talk about the past, my conversations tend to be more future oriented. What is it that you want? And if you cannot articulate that, it's part of the problem. The problem is you keep wanting to talk about how someone did you wrong. I don't say it that directly, but until you can talk about the outcome you want, what does it look like? And most people will say, well, what I want is impossible, which that's a distraction. So I'll say, if it was possible, what would it be? Yeah, but you don't understand what they did three years ago. I understand that three years ago there was a problem, but the question is, what is it that you want now if you could have it? Well, I don't know. Well, let's get back tomorrow as you think about that and can define that because that's the island we're going to be rowing to the whole time. So if I don't establish that end point, it will go in circles for a very long time. Right. That's a, I, that's a really important point. So we've got a clear articulation of the situation. So I got to do some listening, long listening, probably from a neutral third party because the parties involved can't listen at this point very effectively so that we can get to what the situation really is. What is happening now that should or shouldn't be happening or what needs to happen differently? What are the behaviors? And then we need to say, what outcome do you want? What do you want to be different? I find, Marlene, on this one, that people have very abstract views of what they want as an outcome. Let's say, I want to be respected. Okay, I couldn't disagree with that statement, except in my view, that doesn't get us very far. So how do you handle when people articulate abstract outcomes? Yeah, I I really love that question. So So what would that give you that you don't have now? Mm hmm because we want to get to what it really is. There's something missing. They don't feel um, important. They don't feel connected. They don't get asked questions about their work. There's some reason. There's some productivity. There's some thing they want underneath that, you know, or even the statement of, I just want to win the lottery, or I just want Sally to be fired. I look at that as a distraction, and it's always two or three layers deep. So suppose I could do that. What would that give you that you don't have now? Well, then I could get home at five o'clock and be home for dinner and I could feel like I have life balance. So what you want then is life balance. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when people are talking about what they want, they're in problem solving, which I call that getting stuck on the rock called how. They're not talking about strategy. They're talking about solving a problem. And I get this in my work even when someone calls me, they already have decided they want three workshops, a coaching and a whatever. Yeah, that's really process. We have to describe the end result first. And maybe those things make sense. Maybe it makes sense to fire Sally. I don't know yet. But what is it that you want? That is the hardest thing for any of us in conflict, in relationships, in business to really describe what we want, because that's a future state that hasn't been realized yet. And it feels like it's not possible. Right. And it's often a feeling. I want to feel differently. Mm-hmm. which is, uh, okay, that's a hard one to do anything about. When I can specify what it is that I want to feel differently about or what do I want managed differently or what I can get down to a behavior, then we've got something we can work with. Well, and I, I look at it this way too. There's only two things we ever really want. That's peace and prosperity. So it's always a feeling and the end result is always that we want to feel something. And we think the thing that we want will give us that. So I always shortcut it in my mind to think there's a boat, there's an island, and there's a shark. 
the boat is trying to get to the island called Peace and Prosperity, and my methods to get me there aren't working. And so as when I coach, I'm always thinking they want peace and prosperity. It's going to come out and I want you to change. It's going to come out and I need a raise. And so we have to examine what part can they be responsible for without all these other things and what part is a part of that outcome. Okay. All right. Let's talk just a minute about the obstacles. I think the shark that you just said in your analogy, the boat, I'm assuming, is the articulating the real situation we're in. The island is the outcome where I want to be, where I feel peace and prosperity. I love that. And the shark are the bumps that I'm going to hit on the way. Is there a way to help people appreciate the kind of obstacles? Yeah. And I, here's what I've learned over time. If we can articulate the situation and the outcome, sometimes the sharks aren't even there. When we focus on shark, they get bigger and bigger. And it kind of sounds like my shark, my shark, but you don't understand my shark, my my disability, my addiction, my background, my whatever, my gender, it it will come out and these are my problems. Once you get more clear about the outcome, though, and you can tell the truth about the situation, the sharks may be completely different. It may be that I'm not willing to do the work. It may be that I'm not courageous enough to ask for what I want. It may be that I haven't done any inner work. So the sharks are what you perceive them to be, and they may indeed be there. But once people understand the outcome and the the situation, sometimes when they realize what that's going to take to get there, then they realize they don't want it. I've often thought I wanted something until I realized what it was going to mean for me in hours and work and sweat equity, and then I don't want it as much. So we have to examine why do we want what we want. We're wanting peace and prosperity, and I think that will give me that. Yeah. How many times have we seen that one Um, when somebody says, I want uh, to get promoted or I want that next title? And then they follow that by saying, but I don't want my boss's job. So absolutely. You know, I want to be a leader, but I don't want to have difficult conversations. I don't want to abide by decisions management made. I still want the same friends and I want to be on their side. When you become a leader, you give up some of that because your identity has to shift. And especially if you're a a high performer and you're used to getting the accolades, now it's no longer about you. It's about other people. So can you do that? Are you willing to do that? Maybe not. Okay. All right. Um, This is a perfect place to take a break, Marlene. If I, I don't know if I can even possibly summarize this in a clear, succinct way. But I want to start with a couple of phrases. Conflict is about opposing drives, desires, and demands. And we're trying to get rid of the judgment and focus on the curiosity, right? Conflict isn't the problem. Mismanagement is. And mismanagement is avoiding it or appeasing or resenting it. And the two things we've talked about as a way to properly manage conflict is one, bringing the elephant in the room. So noticing the behavior Sating about your interpretation of that behavior and asking the other person's perspective, point of view, agreement, and making people feel heard. Second way is this leadership clarity, which we've just been talking about. Clearly articulating the situation, what is happening that should or shouldn't be happening, what's the outcome you want, generally peace and prosperity, but get a little bit more specific than that, what is to happen, and what are the sharks, imagined, real, self-induced. And when we get clear about that, what we're willing to do for it, it becomes a whole lot easier to work our way through conflict. How's that of summarizing? (laughs) That's the whole book in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. My guest today, Marlene Chisholm, 
the book we're talking about, From Conflict to Courage. You can learn more at Marlene's website, which is M-A-R-L-E-N-E-C-H-I-S-M.com, MarleneChism.com. We'll be right back. I want to continue this with a Why Are People So Afraid? And how do we do more on the inner game? And what about this thing called drama? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Marlene Chisholm. The book we're talking about is From Conflict to Courage. I should also mention, before I forget to say it, that Marlene has three other books all about workplace drama. Stop Workplace, sorry, Stop Workplace Drama, No Drama Leadership, and Stop Drama in Your Healthcare Practice. Um, but we've just been talking about conflict and about what it is to properly manage conflict. I want to spend a little bit more time on this whole notion of the inner conflict. We started that at the very beginning, and you said basically there is no conflict unless there's an inner conflict, that sense of I feel pushed to do something and resisting doing it at the same time. So it's that push-pull, I guess I should say. But really, when you're having people work through their inner source of conflict, what's the steps you have them go through to kind of get the clarity that lets us do this leadership clarity exercise we were just talking about. You know, I really customize it for each person because it just, there's a lot of uh, different nuances, but some common steps that I have people take is first of all, they've got to own the part that they've played. They have to take ownership as 
one red flag for me that I cannot help someone is if everything is always someone else's fault. If everything is always the system, the other person, I had no choice, that tells me there's a victim mindset and there's nothing I can do that's going to change that because they're invested in being right about their sharks. Mm -hmm. So self-awareness, personal responsibility. One thing I'll have people do is journal out their dark side, whatever that dark side is. If they're hating on someone, if they're resentful, instead of pretending that you don't have those issues or those feelings of jealousy or darkness that every single human being has, to be able to journal that and look at it, look at it square in the face because we... Most of us want to pretend that we never feel that. Other people do. But once you put that down and you look at it, then it's about the willingness to take responsibility for how you feel. Because until you feel a sense of agency in how you can change your experience, it will always be on the outside of you. So a part of it is personal responsibility. Another part is just facing the reality, the dark part that you don't want to look at, and then releasing other people from being responsible for your experience. Even if there's facts that support that they did you wrong, what in you continues to have those same patterns where people keep doing you wrong? What did you not look at when it was in the middle of it that now you need to be able to see those patterns? So it's really about how I can get them to personal responsibility and facing their dark side. Okay. All right. Okay. So, um, and I love this one because I swear my life's work is about giving people the tools to feel less like a victim and more like an agent on their own behalf. I mean, I think that's the essence of what we have to do to teach today in terms of career management. All right. Um, So I've got to own my own part, not feel like a victim or uh, have the fault lie somewhere else. Even though other people may have done things, I still have some accountability in that. I want to look at the less wonderful aspects of me, my less wonderful emotions and desires and demands and journal them, admit them. Is there anything else that you have people do with the inner conflict? Yeah. One thing that I say is that when you find your choice, you find your power. So the call of the victim is I didn't have any choice and I don't have any choices. I had no other choice but to. I don't have any choices now. Yeah, but you would have done it if you were me because I had no other choice. So I look at language a lot or I listen for language. And so when I say when you find your choice, you find your power. So in essence, one of my coaching methods is what do you want? What are your choices? And are you willing? So I look at those three points. First of all, the ability to claim what you want. Second of all, looking at your choices that you have to get there. And the third one is, are you willing to do it? Because if any one of those are missing, you won't have agency. So I want to be a leader, but I don't want to get the master's degree that that this company requires of me. I want to talk about how that's not fair, and I want to talk about why I've been doing it already and getting paid. And so I want to make the company wrong instead of saying this is a policy. They've set it for a reason, and either I'm willing to go get it or I'm not. And we're always trying to seek alignment. So personal responsibility is about being aligned to the facts and the way things are and about what I'm willing to do to get there. Okay. All right. I love that. I'm going to steal that one from you, Marlene. From this point going forward, I like your language on it because I know I spend all my time with people helping them see the choices they have in front of them. It's not just one. There's always multiple choices. You may may not be equally good, but there are always multiple choices with consequences. So I'm going to steal that. What do you want? What are your choices and what are you willing to do? 
Yeah. Are you willing? I say willingness is the fulcrum point of change. Nothing happens until there's willingness. You can blame all day long. You can point fingers. You can state facts. That's why we have so much debate and conflict in the political arena. Everybody's just committed to being right, not to finding solutions. There's no willingness to listen, to bend, to work across the aisle. And so as long as there's a lack of willingness, we stay stuck in conflict. Right, right. Uh, and we don't even know what we're arguing about, but stay tuned. That's a podcast coming <laughs> later <laughs> on how to how to structure your own argument and understand what it is we're actually debating about or disagreeing about. Okay, let's shift for a couple minutes. Is there anything else you want to say about the inner conflict or have we covered it? I think that's a lot right there. It's really about personal responsibility, awareness, choice, willingness. Okay, cool. Very good. Let's shift. I want to talk about uh, drama. So um, I know you have done a lot of work and a lot of study around the drama triangle. And we talk about the three roles, the persecutor, the victim, and the rescuer. You want to just explain this drama triangle in your own language quickly yes. rather than me doing it for you? Well, that's the way I describe it, too, because that's Dr. Cartman's work. And I discovered that when I was in sort of a personal drama of wanting to do something more and didn't know what my choices were and felt victimized by you know, family structures and whatnot. And I just got introduced to this tool. The idea is that when relationships are not working, you'll see orientations, I call them behaviors, but you'll see the, the victim at the bottom part of the triangle, upper left is persecutor and to the right is rescue. And the, the fun part of this when I've done this in workshops is for people to identify what kind of role they, they enter the drama on, whether I'm the victim, poor me, this always happens to me, or the persecutor, like your fault because of you, I'm the top performer or the rescuer, let me, let me resolve this, let's be quiet, walk on eggshells, let's not upset anybody. When you start to see that, it's really funny because I'll ask the question, how many of you can identify your victim patterns? And you'll get about three or four percent of the population at a, an event. Then you'll say, how many of you know that you're a persecutor? You're an angry boss. You're rude. You're conceited. You roll your eyes. Oh, you'll get about 10 or 20%. Then I'll say, how many of you are rescuers? And almost everybody raises their hand. And the reason is that they think the rescue role is the good role. Well, at least I'm trying to help. But Dr. Cartman and I talked on the phone one time and I said, oh, I'm such a rescuer. It has helped me so much with my family dynamics. I have paid bills. I've taken care of things. He said, do you realize if you play one role, you play them all? And I said, oh, my God, I didn't. And he said, yeah. And that's when my statement, it takes two to play games unless you're playing solitaire. So we can play solitaire in our own minds and be all three of those roles. But the truth is, if you're rescuing and you're soft soaping and you're appeasing, you're creating drama. You're creating victims. You're creating persecutors. So the way to get off that triangle is to realize that it's your responsibility to stop the, the, the game. Um, what I did with the triangle is I built another piece to it. In the middle is denial. And the way that I saw this was that when someone's totally unaware, for example, you're giving performance feedback and you give performance feedback that shocks them because they thought they were better than they were, they come out being a victim or a persecutor because it feels unfair. And so when we wake someone out of denial, they're going to land on the triangle for the first moment or two. We have to be ready for that and support people so that they can absorb that information. But the triangle in my mind is a tool for personal growth, but what we tend to do is look at what everybody else is doing. Yeah. 
what we want to do with the triangle is to say, how am I being a victim? How am I complaining? How am I judging other people and being a persecutor? Or how am I trying to fix someone's problem when it's just their journey? And so to me, it just, it gets me back out of the game faster. No one's perfect, but the the key for the drama triangle in my mind is just recognition. Right. So it's not that when I, so there is, let me make sure I get this straight. So Wherever I enter that drama that's going on at the moment, whether I feel justified or right or wrong or whatever, I'm entering at one of the three roles, the perpetrator, persecutor, the victim, or the um, rescuer, and each perpetuate the drama. So it's not a good role or a bad role, and each can justify their own story of why they've taken the actions that they're taking. So the step to stop the drama is to, number one, recognize the role that you are playing, and then number two, stop that role, stop playing that role. It's again about personal responsibility. If I realize, for example, one thing I see is a pattern, and this is in family dynamics, but it happens in the workplace too. When your problem becomes so all-consuming for me that I keep taking up the slack, I do extra work, I hide problems that you have because after all, you're going through a divorce. After all, you didn't like your last evaluation, so I'm going to make this one a little bit nicer and I'm going to justify it with I'm a nice boss. Um, or I'm not going to tell on you, whatever it is, we sacrifice our principles in order to take someone else's problems and fix them, or else we're advising someone all the time, yeah, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. When we are doing that, that's like saying, I don't trust you to fix your own problems, and I see you as a victim. And as long as I see you as a victim with no other choice, I take that on, and then I can't be supportive to you because it's becoming my drama. So that's how I look at it, is that if we don't recognize where we are rescuing, persecuting, or enabling a victim mentality, and this is so true in family dynamics, I've never known anybody that didn't have some family member that can't get it together, they can't pay their bills, you you help them out, they need more, they move in with mom and dad, they can afford their cell phone and their Corvette, but they can't afford to pay the bills, they can't afford anything except for what they want, and people buy into that story and therefore, that dynamic goes out into the workplace and beyond whenever we don't see someone as capable. You know, I say there's a difference between helping and rescuing. And the way that I know when I'm helping versus rescuing is when I'm rescuing, I feel resentment. And when I'm helping, it's what I wanted to do. And whether they take my advice or not, I don't care. They paid for my advice. They either have a choice to take it or not. I don't feel compelled to spend three extra hours because they couldn't catch on. They are responsible for their learning. And so if I feel resentment, it means I stepped into rescuing. And if I feel good about my help, I gave someone some money. I don't care if you pay me back. I don't care if you didn't use it the way you said I wanted to do it. I own it. And that's the difference. Okay. That's that's a very helpful distinction. I really love that. So when I am rescuing, right, I am basically saying the other person is a victim. They can't do it by themselves. So I'm taking away their agency. I'm assuming they don't have any agency and therefore I'm making that possible, that true. And I'm not giving them a choice in the matter. And I'm feeling sorry for them instead of seeing them as a creator. When yeah. we start seeing other people as creators, the question becomes, why are you creating that? Versus, oh, that happened to you again. Wow, I've never seen anybody with such bad luck. You know, and we just enable because we feel good when we rescue. It makes us right. feel important. Right. And if we're not self-aware enough about that, we're doing it for our own gain instead of for, for helping them. 
And I love this distinction between uh, whether I'm rescuing or helping is how I feel about what I've done. So if I resent it, or I think you are supposed to do everything I told you to do, then I'm rescuing. Helping, I give you advice, take or don't take, no problem with me. Yeah, there's no moral police here. There's no judgment here because here's the thing. We're not always really choosing because some things are driven by our, our programming and past patterns, but we are always creating. So whether or not it was a choice, which implies consciousness, like we say, you had a choice, you had a choice, but if you didn't see it, you really didn't have a choice. You were operating from subconscious programming, which is pretty deep. But if you think of it from the perspective of of that, we don't always have a choice because we are programmed and we don't realize that. We always have a choice. If we don't see it, we don't have the choice, but we are always creating. So whether we choose consciously or whether we're operating off of programming, there's always a creation from that. There's always an outcome. There's always a consequence. And the only way we can shift that is to take responsibility for it. Because if I'm blaming the winds or the culture or the politics, then I can never change it. Perfect. Marlene? I'm going to have to have you come back to talk more deeply about the drama triangle because I know lots of people want to hear more and more and more and more. So my guest today is Marlene Chisholm. The book we've been talking about for the most part is From Conflict to Courage, but I also strongly recommend this last one we've been talking about, Stop Workplace Drama. You can find out more about Marlene at MarleneChisholm.com. Marlene, thanks for being a guest today. The highlight for me at the end of the day is this notion about how to put the elephant in the room and the fact that if there isn't inner conflict, then there is no real conflict and that it's a competing dreams, desires, and demands. I think that's just a brilliant insight. So thank you, Marlene. Thanks for having me. All right. With pleasure. Um, If you like the podcast today, please like us on your favorite podcast server. Um, Feel free to send us an email, give us a commentary. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.